Welcome to the Paul Post Podcast, in which Professor Post discusses a variety of national security topics. Professor Post is an Assistant Director of the Chicago Projects on Security and Threats, or CPOST, and the author of three books, The Economics of War, Organizing Democracy, and Arguing About Alliances. You can follow him on Twitter at Prof. Paul Post. Professor, an African satirist who has been reporting on America as if it were an African nation for the past year or so, says reality has surpassed satire. As an American professor, do you still feel qualified to lecture on democracy? Oh, I've never felt qualified to lecture on democracy. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, and I can unpack that statement in so many ways. Um, I can say that, first and foremost, as an American um, I've had this sentiment since at least 2000. And the reason why is because 2000, I was living abroad and that was also the year of Bush versus Gore. And I remember hearing from many of people saying, um, so how's that whole election thing working now? How do you guys feel about, you know, <laughs> best practices of elections now? So obviously <laughs> I've had that sentiment since, you know, 2000. So as an American, I've never had any, any illusions about that. Um, as a professor, talking about what does it mean to be a democracy, I mean, th to be honest, this is something that I've always tried to – I don't necessarily like using this word, but I'll use it now – problematize with my students is to say, well, what do we really mean by a democracy? Is it just elections? Is that it? Or is it other things such as independent press, judiciary, independent judiciary? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so once you start thinking about what does it really mean to be a democracy, you realize, wow, there's there's a lot of elements to it, and it can make it very hard to pin down exactly what that means. And then that in turn is what has led to a recent debate about is the, does the U.S. even still qualify as a democracy given its institutions, given what's happening here? And so – you know, I've never felt like I'm in a boat to say this is a democracy and the U.S. is, you know, shining city on a hill, the greatest example of it. It's like, first of all, it's still not 100 percent clear what is a democracy, and it's surely not clear that the U.S. has fully met that definition at any point. So <laughs> that would be my short long, short answer to what could be a very long answer to that question. So explain the events of January 6th. There's a lot of angles we could take from that. Um, do you mean explain it from the standpoint of just like what happened or actually like why it happened? I think we all pretty much saw what happened. I think the confusion is why and what does it mean? Why it happened is, again, another one that you could take back a long way. So I mean, the more immediate thing is this. So I actually sent out a tweet just last night or the other night that put forward the counterfactual. And the counterfactual being, let's assume, and you know, there's a lot of ways we could go back. In fact, a lot of people have said, well, boy, if Trump had just done this at this point, or had just done this at this point, or had just done this at this point. But I said, but here's a real simple counterfactual. Let's go back to the Supreme Court decision to throw out the Texas lawsuit. All right, so Texas, state of Texas had filed this lawsuit basically saying – complaining about how other states were running their elections, specifically Michigan. And 
the Supreme Court said we're not even going to listen to this. And not only did the Supreme Court say we're not even going to hear this, but there was a concurring or dissenting opinion on that by Justice Alito, who is the most conservative of the justices, who actually came in and and said, I disagree with not hearing this case. I think we should hear the case, but I want to make clear that I would have sided against Texas. I think it's a ridiculous claim. You know, he didn't say it like that, but he basically just, this is ridiculous. And pretty much at that point, that's like, the end of this legal process that Trump was trying to put forward. And prior to then, even if you disagreed with his claims about the election was stolen or there was fraud, you could at least say, well, there's a judicial, there is a process he can go through. Um, and going back to Bush versus Gore, we saw that process play out then as well, except it was focused just on Florida. So let him go through the process, let him do that. And that was indeed like, say, Mitch McConnell's view, the uh, majority. Uh, in the Senate, a leader, majority leader in the Senate. But following that decision, it was like, the, it's over. Like, this is it. There's just, just, there's no other, you've had all these other court cases. At that point, if he had just said, you know what, it is what it is. I'm going to respect the, the Supreme Court. I put three of the justices on the Supreme Court. They all signed against, you know, it's like, he could have just said, you know what, it is what it is. I'm going to help the Biden transition. Here's what would have happened. Suddenly, within a few weeks, you would have started to see in the, quote, mainstream media opinion pieces that would actually put a semi-positive spin on his presidency. He would still have Twitter, right? He's lost that. He actually would start – there would be things starting to line up for him to be making money afterwards. There would be a lot more political, like – fallout, if you will, if they tried to prosecute him, say at the state level, because that's the things about tax evasion and so forth. I mean, it's like it's one thing for it to be legally there. It's another thing. Do you politically go after him? I think it would have set up to been like he actually would have positioned himself to have a very fine post-presidency life and maybe even positioned himself to run again in 2024, right? Because the Republican Party would have been like, oh, you know, not so bad, blah, 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 blah. And that's after everything else that's happened. That's after everything else that's happened. If he had just done that after the Supreme Court decision, I really do think that's what would have happened. But he instead doubled down and he continued to double down even in the face of like – like again, just from my standpoint, like even if I was – let's just say that I'm like a super conservative Republican. Let's say that. I would still be like, oh my gosh, the Supreme Court with three justices that you put on it just said, no, there's nothing to this, <laughs> right? And then the Secretary of State of Georgia, who's a Republican, has said, no, there's nothing to this. You need to let this go. But he he just couldn't let it go. And as a result, that got a lot of people who do follow him fired up. And then they all came to D.C., through his own encouragement, came to D.C., then he came and he gave that address and got the crowd there. He gets them all fired up, says, let's go to the Capitol. And then that's what happened. Then this crowd goes to the Capitol, and now this is where it gets uncertain. We still don't know fully the extent to which there was, say, and you know, use the phrase inside job. Right. Like, why was there not enough police there to be able to control this? Why did it seem like people were able to walk in? Um, 
there's all sorts of, you know, to what extent were there organized kind of militia groups there versus just another crap. There's all these other questions we still don't have information on. But the reason why I wanted to give all that is to say that ultimately the reason why this happened was because of Donald Trump's own personal reluctance to accept the election outcome. And even, and I'm saying this to say he still could have gone through the process of saying, no, I think there's irregularities. He could have gone through, but at some point he needed to just let that go and he wouldn't do it. And that's ultimately what led to the events last week. Do you think it's done any good? Good from the standpoint of American democracy or good from the standpoint of helping his from cause? From the standpoint of American democracy. You know, this is something I, I brought this up um, last week. I was um, in, interviewing, I was being interviewed by someone and I said, there's two ways that you could look at this. You could say that this really highlights or has revealed a flaw in American democracy. You could you could look at it that way and to say that you know U.S. democracy will never recover from this. On the other hand, you could also say that this might demonstrate the resiliency of American democracy because of a couple factors. Number one, the Senate and the House came back after adjourning session because of the rioters getting into the Capitol. They came back and finished the certification of the votes. So that was a huge that you know it seems trivial that normally this is a trivial process. But in this case, being able to say, nope, we're going to come back. This is the process we're setting out to do, and we're not going to allow a right to prevent that. That that's meaningful. Um that's one reason that it could be considered to show kind of the resiliency. It didn't – the whole thing didn't get shut down. They came back and finished it. The second way in which it could show the resiliency uh, really is more contingent, but it's something that we're seeing play out right now, which is to what extent do our democratic processes hold accountable those who are responsible for this? And that means both the people who actually committed the physical acts themselves, meaning the rioters, the looters that are coming into it, coming into the Capitol, but also holding President Trump responsible for this. And that's something that we need to see. I actually – an analogy that I've been thinking about quite a bit is going back – boy, I think it was maybe 2005, 2006, but the Abu Ghraib prison. So if you recall, Abu Ghraib was a military prison or it was a prison used by the U.S. military in Iraq. And what had come out was that prisoners were being abused by U.S. military at this prison. And they were being abused by them, being humiliated by them, put on these photographs. And this is obviously not an example of you know, U.S. shining city on a hill. But I remember that what happened was this was – and the reason why I'm bringing this up is this was another event brought up to say, oh my gosh, look at the hypocrisy of the United States. This is not the example that the world should be seeing in the United States. This shows how bad the U.S. system is. But I remember at the time they said key, the key for the U.S. – the key for the United States is not that a mistake was made because a mistake was made there. It's do you correct it? Can it be corrected and can people be held accountable for it? And I remember this was ultimately what led to Rumsfeld kind of falling out with Bush. And then this is also what, um, you know, people were held accountable. There were um, trials held for this. And 
I thought that that was a useful lesson, that it wasn't that the Abu Ghraib prison scandal had occurred. It was that what makes the U.S. system works is that there's accountability and that you're able to course correct from it. Whereas in other systems, there's no accountability. And so if a mistake's made, it just goes on. And so to me, that's why we're at a critical point is will there be accountability for what occurred? That will show the resiliency of the U.S. system. And that surely sends a strong message to future presidents, indeed politicians of all levels, that if you engage in this sort of behaviour, you will be held accountable. Would that be right? Absolutely. And I think that's the other reason why it's critical. That's the other reason why this is critical for showing the resiliency of the system is that if you don't hold people accountable, then that makes it the next time you can lose a little bit more. You can lose a little bit more. So if you go back to the Abu Ghraib, it's like if no one's held accountable for that, then it sends a signal that, hey, this is permissible behavior. And then that's suddenly going to make it less likely for all sorts of things to occur. It's going to make it less likely for our allies to want U.S. troops on their territory, right? It's going to make it harder to recruit for the U.S. military. It's going to make it, I mean, it's just, you can start to see where it's like, look, I don't like what the U.S. military represents, and it's going to be not because of what the U.S. military, what these people in the military did. It's going to be because of the failure of accountability, that there was no holding them accountable for it. And I think you see the same thing here, that, look, Trump has already been impeached. As of this morning, he's been impeached again twice. First time ever. He, I think there's going to be further fallout. I don't know if he's going to be convicted by the Senate, and, you know, some people even say at this point, like, does it matter? It's like, obviously, in another week, he's no longer president. It does matter from the standpoint of can he ever run again? But it also matters from this sending a signal of accountability is that, no, we're, we're going to impeach you. We're not going to allow you. I mean, McConnell himself made a statement about it's kind of important to purge Trump from the Republican ranks. That's another form of accountability. And so, yes, I do think that it's important to send the signal that – this type of behavior won't be tolerated. And again, I just I, to me, that's the key to a democratic system. It's not that mistakes aren't made, not that bad things don't happen, but that there's an accountability mechanism. And so I think that that is important for future presidents to be able to see that. Presumably you've been to the Capitol, right? <laughs> yes. There are four yes. huge paintings of the American Revolutionary Period that hang in the rotunda. The Declaration of Independence, the surrender of General Burgoyne, the surrender of Lord Cornwallis, and General George Washington resigning his commission. And if you look up at the, the dome, it depicts George Washington brandishing a sword rising to heavens in glory flanked by female figures representing liberty and, and victory and or fame. And six figures are around the canopy. One is war with armed freedom, who looks a bit like a female Captain America, and an eagle are defeating tyranny and kingly power. Commerce shows Mercury handing a bag of money to Robert Morris, the financier of the American Revolution. And mechanics shows Vulcan at an anvil and forge producing a cannon and a steam engine. Hardly celebrating justice and peace, yet after January 6 occurred, President-elect Joe Biden comes out and says, this is not who we are. That's another topic. That's another topic. So let's shift gears. I'm glad you're going this direction. So I just talked about what is necessary for the U.S. democratic system to be functional, right? It's accountability. And that, that, is, that is true. However, um, in, in some respects, that's separate 
and from this this issue that you're just now bringing up, which is, okay, regardless of what's necessary for U.S. democracy to function, what is the United States, <laughs> right? You know, even if you define the U.S. as a democracy, what does it mean to be in the United States? Like how frequently does the U.S. make these mistakes could be one way to look at it. But yeah, I, I've heard that phrase a lot. You hear that phrase a lot in a lot of instances. You hear this when people say, this is not who I am, or they say, you know, this is not who we are. And it's like, really? <laughs> because... If you look at the history of the United States, part of the reason why accountability is so important is because there's been so many times where the U.S. or figures in the United States, key leaders in the United States, have made or allowed to happen things that we don't think are right in a normative sense. This is everything from the fact that the country was founded on slavery all the way up to whether you want to look at something like Abu Ghraib. I mean, I just mentioned that. But there's so many times where there's this lack. There's these decisions made by U.S. leaders. There's um, support by the public for policies that, in hindsight, we sit there and go, whoa, wait a minute. That probably is not – that's definitely not meeting the ideals that we've held out for the American – but have we ever met those ideals? So, yeah, I, I've always found it weird to say, like, you know, this is not who we are. And yet, as you point out, it's like, well, no, a lot of the imagery we have. I mean, you know, the very sp the Star Spangled Banner itself is a is about war, <laughs> right? You know, isn't the first step to recovery to admit that you have a problem? hundred percent, hundred percent. And so, yeah, if you're going to have this accountability, you have to you you have to come out and say, I think instead of coming out and saying, this is not who we are. It's instead to come out and say, we're messed up. <laughs> you know, I, Churchill said it best. I don't know if Churchill actually said this, but I think he, it, but it's attributed to him. And it sounds like something he would say, but he says that the Americans always do the right thing after exhausting all other possibilities. <laughs> right. And of course he says this in the 1940s, but it's so true. So by the 1940s, you know, there's already this perception that it's like, yeah, you know, the U.S. might fancy itself as a shining city on the hill or American exceptionalism or whatever it is. But there, you know, everybody else in the world kind of looks at it and goes, what are you doing? You know, and I think that this is another example of that. And so I do think that in many ways, Churchill is right. And I've actually used that phrase a lot to say that I do think the United States eventually comes around to doing what is close <laughs> to the right thing and the ideal, but that doesn't mean we start off that way at all, at all. And so, and I think that this is another example of it where it's like, you know, there's this whole process and suddenly you have the invasion of capital and insurrection. And it's like, whoa, okay, wait a minute. Maybe that's not the right. And so now suddenly we're starting to see accountability for Trump. I mean, just look at the second impeachment vote. The first impeachment vote, there's no Republicans at all who are supporting it in the House. Yesterday, there were 10. Now, 10 may not sound like much, but that's the most ever cross-party. That's an example of what we're talking about, that it's like eventually <laughs> come around to doing the right thing. And so 
Yeah, I think that when you sit there and you hear that phrase, this is not who we are. I actually think, no, it, it is who we are. Our track record is very well captured by that Churchillian phrase of, no, the U.S. has repeatedly and always does the wrong thing. It's just the key is it has a mechanism to where it can correct and correct and correct and hopefully at some point do what is the right thing. And I think we're on the precipice of doing that in this case here. But, of course, you know, we still have to see how this plays out. Your Twitter feed on the Polity Project was hugely entertaining and diverse. Why do you think it hit such a nerve? <laughs> it hit a nerve for a lot of reasons. Um, first of all, Polity, the, the key point of context here is Polity is, and it's not even close. It's not even close. Polity is by far the most widely used measure of country's government type in the social sciences. And it's not even close. Um, <clears throat> recently, the Varieties of Democracy Project, which is a, kind of a competitor to Polity, they had produced an internal report, but it's available on their website of kind of comparing their measure to other measures. And they, they actually have this table that shows here's all the other measures and they even have like number of citations and articles and it's like polity is just orders of magnitude more citations more public everything it's just it's way more widely used and so as a result a lot of people in the social sciences are going to pay attention to that so that's going to be one reason anytime you bring up polity and especially you bring up critiques of polity people in the social sciences are going to pay attention so that's one group of people who were like whoa when you start bringing up about not just that polity had lowered the democracy score for the U.S., but then start pointing out why that might be flawed. That's one reason people got fired up. There's a second group, which are people who are not social scientists, had never heard of polity, <laughs> and had a bit of a WTF <laughs> reaction to, wait a minute, this is what you all do, right? That's the other reaction I saw, is that people go, wait, this, this, is, this is what you – you social scientists do when you're measuring democracy is you use a scale like this. And moreover, you're using a scale that considered the United States a full democracy back in the mid 19th century when it had slavery and not universal suffrage. That's messed up, right? You know, and so that was the other group of people who, um, we're attracted to, which I actually pointed out to someone. I said, maybe that's one benefit to this whole thing is it suddenly made a new, group or swath of people aware of polity or aware of what social scientists do, but not necessarily in a good way because they would come out being like, wait, but this is messed up what you're doing. So I think those are kind of the two main reasons that it struck a chord besides the fact that, um, you know, it also just said that the U S is no longer considered democracy. And I think that anytime you do that, it's going to get attention. In fact, uh, Ben Ansel, who's a, um, professor at, um, and uh, Oxford, a comparative politics professor, had even criticized Polity Project by saying this was just clickbait, that basically they just did this to get attention, you know, to, to get attention. And that it seemed kind of rash to be able to lower this score. I pointed out in the thread some reasons why their their rationale for it didn't make sense. But overall, I think that's the reason why it got attention was it's so widely used. So it got politi it got social scientists attention. But then because. But then also because of the context, it got a lot of other people's attention who had never heard of it before saying, wait, this is what you do? This is messed up. One of the other big questions that has been raised is, well, how do we characterize this? Is it a coup? Is it an insurrection? How do you characterize what happened on January 6th? 
Oh, yeah. No, this has been the other part of debate. So not only have you had this polity project come out and say the U.S. is no longer considered a democracy, but you also have the question of, well, what exactly happened on January 6th and how should we um, how should we code it analytically? And I want to emphasize that analytically because there, there can be policy reasons. There can be political reasons that you want to call something a coup or you want to call it an insurrection uh, for rhetorical reasons and so forth. But as a scholar, when you're analyzing this, how do you classify this event? And there's been a bit of debate about whether it should be considered a coup attempt or not. And the crux of that debate basically comes down to the role of security forces. All right. That do you because the classic example of a coup is where, you know, I mean, if you will, the stereotype of a coup is generals walk into the president's office and say, you're done. We're taking over and we're putting this other person into power. That's the that's the you know, classic example of a coup. So military is involved. Threat of force is backed by it, removing the civilian uh, incumbent. That didn't happen here. But that doesn't mean that it's not necessarily a coup. The The key questions you have to ask is, well, first of all, it doesn't have to be the military, but it could be security forces. Well, that's where you know brought up earlier, what role did the Capitol Police play in this, right? Why is it that there was not like extra security there? Was that deliberate? Was that not deliberate? You know, that's that's one question. Then you have people within the government who are not necessarily advocating for violence per se, at least not explicitly, but they really were. You know, you had certain senators who were pushing for this crowd to get fired up and were going to be raising questions about the election. So that starts to raise questions about it being coordination between, you know, within the government and institutions. The other part of it, though, that makes it really complicated is you have an incumbent who's trying to do this. You typically don't think of a coup being in, engaged by an incumbent. You usually think of the coup as being a challenger. But in this case, it's an incumbent who's a lame duck, right? There's a new person who's going to be coming in. So this is an attempt to try to replace that new person coming in. And so that's where it becomes a little bit complicated. Now, what some, I think the unanimous, or at least the point that people can agree on is that it falls under what we call a self-coup. And, you know, a self-coup is, is the idea that you, it's exactly what it sounds like, is I, as the incumbent, am going to enact policies that are going to allow me to stay in power. But you can do that without necessarily having the military involved and so forth. So that's that's been the nature of the debate. And actually, I've gone so far as to say um, what I'm doing right now is I actually just said, you know what, I, I can't necessarily engage in this debate. I'm going to throw it to my students. So I actually have my students right now engaged in an exercise where they're coding it themselves. And I'm going to see what my students end up coming up with. Uh, these are my graduate students in one course where, you know, I introduce them to the different data sets on coups. I say, here are their coding rules. And then I have them read some of the pieces that have been arguing about this event being one way or the other. And then I'm going to see what the students end up coming up with. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, will the majority of them code it as a coup attempt or will they code it as not a coup attempt? Um, but that's been the nature of this debate. Well, it's their future they're discussing. Absolutely. One of the great war cries, if you like, is, you know, I'm defending the Constitution. Did the framers see a situation like this occurring? The founders of the Constitution were very concerned about military rule. And so I think that they they were concerned about the prospects of coup. 
they were concerned about the prospects of insurrection. I don't think they necessarily envisioned something like what we just saw. Um, however, this is actually a point of debate. This this is truly a point of debate because there were no term limits placed on the president when the Constitution was first written, right? So the president could technically have been president for life. Um, there also – there's been some recent scholarship that has shown um, – in fact, a, a book called The Royalist Revolution – that kind of suggests that maybe the founders actually part of the reason that they were there was the revolution wasn't that you know the the the, the typical story is it's a the 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 colonists were against King George but actually this newer scholarship says no they were against the parliament and they wanted King George to be more assertive and you know and, and when you think about it, what's the classic cry of the revolution no taxation without representation so they were mad about not being represented in parliament and they felt that it was king george's responsibility to protect them from that and he wasn't doing it and so as a result with the argument that's being made in this by this line of scholarship is that they designed the constitution and specifically the presidency to be a stronger position to kind of do what they felt king george could not do and so if you merge that with the idea that they they had not placed term limits on the president when they first founded it, then it does raise these questions of would they have been okay with the quote imperial presidency, right? Would they have been okay with a president saying, no, I, I actually want to stay in power and so forth? I mean, I don't think they would have wanted to see an insurrection, <laughs> but um, but in terms of you know concerns about having an imperial presidency, you know, that's that's a matter of debate. And, but it is clear they had concerns about the military. That's why the military is very weak in the Constitution. And so I do think that they had concerns about coups themselves. Mm-hmm.